0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Right off the bat, I know what you're thinking, because typically we do not appreciate genealogies in our modern-day society, in our modern-day world. Typically, whenever we come across a genealogy in the middle of the Bible, we just kind of skip over it and move on to the more exciting stuff. But over the course of this video, I'm wanting to demonstrate to you, first off, how exciting this genealogy is, secondly the message that this genealogy communicates and thirdly why matthew felt the need to include this at the very beginning of his gospel and so hopefully we'll be able to communicate all that stuff over the course of this video and you'll be left at the end of this video appreciating this genealogy and understanding its importance in the gospel of matthew and to the gospel and bible as a whole Uh, we're gonna have to wrestle through some more difficult things as well and so we've got a lot to cover so let's not waste any time let's hop into the text of matthew I'm going to start by reading the verse we already covered last week because it's literally just one verse, and let's just include it in here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Pérez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Pérez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab was the father of Nashin, and Nashin was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, and Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh was the father of Amon, and Amon was the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. And Abihud was the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim was the father of Azor. And Azor was the father of Zadok. And Zadok was the father of Akim. And Akim was the father of Eliud. And Eliud was the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar was the father of Matan. And Matan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom jesus was born who is called the christ therefore all the generations from abraham to david are 14 generations and from david to the deportation to babylon 14 generations and from the deportation to babylon to the christ 14 generations all right so there we have the text that we're covering today that's all we're going to be covering but You see that there's a lot of interesting things there. You see that Matthew breaks this genealogy down into three sets of 14, and that seems to be his whole focus throughout all of this, right? He feels like he is communicating something by establishing these sets of three sets of 14. However, this is where immediately we begin to bump into some issues that arise as a result of this genealogy, and the first thing I want to do in this video is I want to address the issues that people have pointed out with these three sets of 14, with the genealogy itself, and once we've addressed those issues, then we can actually move on and talk about Matthew's overall goal in this uh, little section of Scripture here. And so, let's talk about the first issue that people people point out. Is this really three sets of 14? Right here, I have got all the people I just listed, listed out in column order, according to the three sections that Matthew included, right? You have 14 people there, 14 people in the middle, and 14 at the end, right? Abraham to David, David to the deportation, Babylon, and then 14 people from the deportation to the arrival of Jesus. And so if you just look at this at first glance, that looks like it is exactly accurate. You'll notice that each column has 14 people in each one. However, if you look a little bit more closely, you'll notice that I had to do something in order to make this work. You'll notice that the name of David appears at the bottom of the first list and also at the top of the second list. Because whenever you're actually looking through this, Matthew lists out 42 generations, but if you're actually counting the number of men who are mentioned, there's actually only 41 people listed. There are 14 people from Abraham to David. But then, if you go from David all the way to Jeconiah, there's actually 15 people. But then if you start with Jeconiah to Jesus, there's 14 people, right? And so, if you include David at the beginning and end of each list, and then Jeconiah at the beginning and end of each list, you actually have one too many people. But that's And that's if you count them both, right? But, if you take out David at the beginning of both lists, then you actually have one less. And so, really, the debate becomes, is there actually... 42 generations being represented here and what is matthew trying to communicate with this because either you have to only or you have to either count david twice and only count jeconiah once or you have to only count david once or count jeconiah twice or you have to count both of them twice or both of them once and have either one too many or one too little that was a really complicated way of saying that there's something very interesting going on with this genealogy right here where people point out that this isn't consistent and it almost seems like Matthew is forcing this 14, 14, 14 schema that he has established. And so people point that out as an issue and before addressing that and giving my explanation for it, what I want to do is I want to list out the other issues as well so you see all the different things that people have pointed out about this genealogy. uh, And specifically, usually people point these out from a more skeptical or critical perspective, whereas I think that there are legitimate answers to each of these, and so we'll break those down. But that's the first issue, right? Is there really three sets of 14? Because really it seems like there's a set of... there are two sets of 14 and one set of 13 right? That's what it really seems like here, uh, because there's only 41 people mentioned. But let's move on. The second issue that people point out is that whenever you compare the genealogy right here in the Gospel of Matthew with the genealogy of David listed in the First Chronicles, Matthew actually skips a few people, right? He actually skips three generations of people. He skips. Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. He goes straight from Joram to a guy named Uzziah, and if you compare the text of scriptures, you'll see that the guy named Uzziah, he had another name called Azariah, and if you go to 1 Chronicles, you'll see that there were actually three generations in between. It goes Joram, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, and you look at him, and you're like, okay, so once again, it seems like Matthew is Forcing this whole 14 14 14 thing either that or he just didn't know his old testament and so people are once again left scratching their heads saying matthew what are you doing here first off do you not know how to count and secondly do you not know your old testament and so people look and it's a bit confusing at what exactly matthew is trying to get across by what he's doing here if that wasn't enough there's also a third issue here The third issue is that whenever you compare the genealogy that's found in the Gospel of Matthew to the genealogy that's found in the Gospel of Luke, they're a little bit different, right? They're actually vastly different, Uh, and some of those differences are easily explainable. First off, Luke and Matthew start at different places, right? Um, Matthew goes in order from beginning to end, whereas Luke starts with Jesus and works his way backwards. Matthew, the earliest descendant that he lists is Abraham. Whereas if you go to Luke, the earliest descendant he lists is Adam, and then he actually goes beyond Adam to go to God. Uh, And so we see that they have different kind of starting and ending points. They have different orders there. But if you actually look at the genealogies and you put them in sequential order, you'll see that there's actually some further differences there. So if you actually go to David, right, King David, you'll see that Matthew chases the genealogy of Jesus through david's royal son solomon the one who became the king and he's following the royal line of david whereas if you go to luke he actually goes through a whole different son of david he goes through the son named nathan and he goes down this whole other list and whenever you actually compare them you'll see that there's all these different names and people will scratch their heads and they'll say how can these both be true at the same time is it possible that these two lines converge and what's exactly going on there and You know what? When it comes to this third issue, I do think that there is an answer to this, but I don't think that it is really important for us to address that in this particular video uh, because I'm more concerned with um, the first two issues because those are more particular to the Gospel of Matthew. If we ever go through the Gospel of Luke on this channel, then I think it'd be appropriate to address this issue, Um, but I'm really not focusing on cross-pollinating Gospel issues Uh, in this particular series, I'm really wanting to focus on Matthew in and of itself because I believe Matthew was the first one written, and so I'm wanting to just address Matthew by itself for right now. Right? And so I'm not going to address this third issue here, but if you are interested in this and trying to reconcile this, just go Google it. There's other people who are much smarter than myself who have already addressed this one. Uh, but it is something that people have pointed out and have pointed out that there seems to be some sort of discrepancy going on here. And I don't think that it's too difficult to reconcile, but go look it up for yourself if you want. But I do want to address those first two issues, right? Because those two things are things we do need to wrestle through because Matthew's entire point with his genealogy seems to hinge on the idea that there are 14 generations with each of these three lists and those first two issues are specifically combating that because the first issue points out that apparently it's really 14 13 14 or something like that and then the second one points out that he had to skip generations in order to get at this 14 14 14 to begin with and so if matthew's whole point hinges around the 14 14 14 thing then we've got an issue and we need to actually wrestle through that in order to understand whether or not Matthew is just dumb or whether or not he's actually making a point here. And the first thing I want to do before I actually begin to respond to these is I want to suggest that maybe we give Matthew the benefit of the doubt, right? Uh, And what I mean by that is this. A lot of the times, scholars will approach the Bible with an inherent air of skepticism where they are so quick to point out things and say ha 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 we caught you in a contradiction uh, to the gospel writers or to the authors of the bible whereas really i don't think we do this with pretty much any other book usually with any other book if somebody says they're trying to accomplish something then we give them the benefit of the doubt that they're at least going to give their best effort at it and if we don't immediately understand it we kind of assume that maybe they're being more nuanced than we might at first think. And I would suggest that we should give the same benefit of the doubt to Matthew as we would give to any other author of any other book, because Matthew is not dumb. We can tell that by the way that his book is written. He uses very precise language and he knows what he's doing. And it seems very weird for us to be so skeptical, especially so early on. I mean, think about what Matthew's trying to accomplish here. There's this growing sect called Christianity in the realms of Judaism, and he is trying to give a defense of Christianity to the Jewish people. It would be very foolish to think that Matthew is going to just start his book off with outright contradictions because he's got one shot, right? He is trying to defend the faith to the initial audience. I think that we should give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that maybe Matthew, the former tax collector, knows how to count. And maybe he does know the difference between 14 13 and 14 and maybe the fact that he lists these things out means that he has a reason behind why he's doing what he asserts that he is doing and maybe he knows his old testament because he is somebody who has studied the old testament because he is a jewish person who lives in the first century israel he's probably studied these things very very well and he's not going to start off a genealogy to defend the birth and the genealogical record of Jesus, unless he's actually studied the genealogies. And so I think maybe we should go into it assuming that Matthew knows what he's doing, and unless he can, like, we have no reason to think that he knows what he's doing, then we discount it. But let's actually respond to these. So, issue number one, is this really three sets of 14? Like I mentioned, Matthew breaks this down into three categories, Abraham to David, David to the deportation, and then deportation to Christ. Okay. Uh, So, how do you wrestle through this? What is Matthew trying to accomplish here? Because you have to list David twice in order for this to work. Either that or you have to list Jeconiah twice, uh, but pretty much nobody would assume that you would do that because um, that would just be kind of weird. I think that Matthew makes this kind of clear, actually, if you just pay attention to his wording. If you go to the very end in verse 17, notice what he says. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Actually, sorry, let me go back. All right, so this is how he frames it. Abraham to David, David to deportation, deportation to Christ. Do you notice the distinction there? What Matthew does not say is Abraham to David and David to Jeconiah and Jeconiah to Christ. He also doesn't say from the giving of the covenant to the establishment of david's monarchy and then from the establishment of david's monarchy to the exile in babylon to the exile in babylon to the arrival of jesus he doesn't say that instead he says abraham to david so person to person and then he says david to deportation so person to event and then it says from deportation to christ so you have event to person so matthew himself seems to be admitting that there is a difference in how he has constructed this, and in this way, it seems like he's admitting that he is forcing this into a set of 14, right? So I think that he's admitting, yeah, like, it's not naturally just 14, 14, 14. It's the way that I have constructed this genealogy that I am trying to communicate a point, right? So he goes person to person in the first section. He goes person to event in the second section, and he goes event to person in the third section. And so, if you're going from Abraham to David, that is 14 generations. And then if you go from David to the deportation, you stop before the person who was in charge of the deportation, right? And so, at that point, you get to go David to Josiah. You stop right there. All right, but then, from the deportation, then you start counting with Jeconiah and go all the way to Jesus, and that's another 14. And I think Matthew himself is admitting the fact that he is working the system to get those three sets of 14 that he really wants. And so I think that Matthew's being very clear about that. I don't think that he is trying to beat around the bush. I think he's like, yes, I am working this and I am framing this in a particular way because I want it to be three sets of 14. The question ultimately is going to be, why does Matthew ultimately want those three sets of 14? And that's what we're going to have to answer in a few minutes. But before we do that, let's move on to the second issue, because I think we also need to address that one. And I think that really you ultimately get back to the same answer. Matthew's really wanting this three sets of 14. But why does he cut out these three groups of people, right? Why does he cut out these three generations, right? So if you're going through Matthew's genealogy, this is how the genealogy goes, David. Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, right? Those are the 14 generations from David to the deportation. However, if you go to 1 Chronicles, it says it's David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram, and then this is where it splits off, right? Joram gives birth to Ahaziah, then Ahaziah to Joash, Joash to Amaziah. Amaziah to Azariah, Azariah to Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, so there's three names in the middle those people are being left off by Matthew and so you could say that maybe Matthew was just picking and choosing and he was like well I really want this to be 14 and so I just need to get three of them out of there and so maybe he just picked some random three that he didn't like and got rid of them and you know what Matthew is totally entitled to do that and you've got to realize that that's is totally fine right I mean the word son and how he frames this it doesn't have to be sequential generations Matthew could have just done that but I think maybe we should be more nuanced than that and I think that Matthew's a smart guy and so i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and i'm going to suggest did he have a reason that's what the question i want to ask did he have a reason for cutting out these three generations in particular and if you go back to the old testament i think that the answer is yes if you go back to second kings this is what we read in chapter eight now in the fifth year of joram the son of ahab the king of israel now this is a different joram than the one we read um, about In the genealogical list of Matthew, this is a Joram over in the kingdom of Israel. If you remember, I mentioned this a few videos ago, actually last video, at this time period uh, in the Israel's history they've split into two nations, right? The northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. So this first Joram mentioned here, this is a different Joram, he is the Joram in Israel, right? Now in the fifth year of Joram the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then the king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, became king. All right, so this is even more confusing because Jehoram mentioned right here is the same Joram that was mentioned in Matthew's genealogy, right? So we actually have a guy named Joram who is reigning in Israel at this time and then another guy named Jehoram reigning in Judah, but Jehoram is just a longer version of the name Joram, right? So you actually had two guys named Joram reigning in Israel and Judah at the same time period. The second one is the one that Matthew mentions in his genealogy, right? All right, so Joram begins reigning in Judah at this time period. If you go to a few verses later it says this and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel so this Joram guy not a great king he walked in the way of the kings of Israel just as the house of Ahab had done Ahab was a wicked king he was a terrible guy and Joram was not a great king either right he follows in the way of Ahab and then notice what it says for the daughter of Ahab became his wife this woman's name was Adaliah we learn this uh, I think it's like in verse 26 of the same chapter so he marries a daughter of Ahab, a wicked king of Israel. So this guy, who is the king of Judah, marries the daughter of this wicked king of Israel named Ahab. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, right? So we see that this Joram guy, not a great guy, and he marries the daughter of a wicked king of Israel. Okay, well, go a few chapters later. This is what we read about Ahab. This is the wicked king of Israel, Right. Uh, so a little bit further on, uh, after Ahab is gone and everything, there's this guy named Jehu becomes who becomes the king of Israel. And this is what we read: Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. So Jehu was a much better king. He wasn't perfect. He did a bunch of bad stuff as well, but he was better than some of the other kings of Israel. And as a result, Yahweh said to Jehu, "Because you have done well in doing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart." your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of israel so jehu actually does better than some of the other kings of israel like i said jehu's still not a great guy but he did better and as a result he was rewarded by god and he says instead of ahab's descendants sitting on the throne of israel for four generations you will sit on the throne of israel for four generations so because of ahab's wickedness he was cut off from reigning in israel for four generations However, there's an issue that we just addressed in chapter 8 of 2 Kings. Ahab's line was also on the throne in Judah at that time period because King Joram had married Ahab's daughter Adaliah. And so their children are also descendants from Ahab. And if Ahab isn't allowed to reign in Israel for four generations, he definitely isn't being allowed to reign in Judah for four generations either, right? However, that's exactly the case. We actually do have descendants of Ahab sitting on the throne in Judah at this time period, belonging to the royal line of David. This would be, first off, Adaliah, who becomes the queen. Secondly, Ahaziah, thirdly, Joash, and fourthly, Amaziah. So if you look at 2 Kings, you actually have basically this curse almost pronounced on Ahab, and says, because you're wicked, You're not going to reign for four generations. And so the four generations following Ahab, you have to view their reign as being illegitimate. They are not allowed to sit on the throne in Israel. And even though they're sitting on the throne in Judah, it seems like what Matthew is communicating is that he doesn't view these as legitimate kings yes they're on the throne but they have been judged by god and therefore you can skip over their generations and this is actually something that i'm not making up we actually see somebody interpreting it this way as early as the fourth century a.d there's this person named Hilary of poitiers and this is what they have to say it was done in this way because joram begot ahaziah from a pagan woman that is from the household of ahab and it was declared by the prophet that not until the fourth generation would anyone from the house of ahab sit on the throne of the kingdom of israel And so, basically, the idea is that Matthew is actually giving a theological commentary on what was going on in the land of Israel at this time period. It's not that Matthew just didn't know his genealogical records. is that he knew them so well that he knew what was going on at this time period, and therefore, he skipped over Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah because those were the three generations following Adaliah, who herself was the daughter of Ahab. And so this is actually a commentary where we actually see that Matthew is tracing the royal line of David, but skipping the four generations that immediately followed from the wicked king Ahab, right? And that was a reflection on the punishment that God inflicted on them. And so you see that those two things are actually... Fairly quickly reconciled if you just do a little bit of studying of scripture, right? And you can actually look at it, you're like, oh, I see what's going on. First off, let Matthew speak for himself on the first issue, and he's like, yeah, no, I am working this in order to get us to 14, right? And so he did Abraham to David, David to deportation, deportation to Jesus. He's very clear about that. And then with this one, if you just study the Old Testament, you'll see that there's actually a reason. remove those three generations from the list if you're trying to communicate something theologically. He's trying to communicate something about those who had a sanction by God to be on the throne, not simply people who were sitting on the throne itself, right? And so those issues are actually reconciled if you just read the text. But the question becomes, why is Matthew obsessed with the number 14? Because no matter what you're looking at here, you do have to realize that he is obsessed with this number. He himself says it, In verses 16 and 17, he's like, yeah, the reason I did this is because I want it to be 14, 14, 14. And he has to do some surgery on this genealogy in order to arrive at the number 14. So the question becomes, why does Matthew care about the number 14 so much in this genealogy? And that's the question we really need to wrestle through. And you know what? There are a bunch of different theories about this. I'm just going to share with you some of them. First off, theory number one, seven is the number of completion right? Uh, Throughout scripture, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of God. It's the number of perfection. And so 14 is two by seven and like it's two times seven. And so it's almost like doubly perfect. That's what some people would suggest. I think this is probably the weakest of the theories, but it's probably the one that you hear proposed the most. Um, And so I'm just going to move past this one, but that is something that people do suggest. Uh, This one I actually say is even it's actually probably better right because this one points out the fact that yes se- like it still hinges on the idea that seven is really the main focus and it points out that if you have three groups of 14 that's actually six groups of seven and you can go back like some people will quote back to like the book of daniel and talk about like the seven sevens and stuff like that or the seventy sevens and everything and they'll talk about how maybe this is matthew indicating that this is the perfect time for the messiah to be born some people suggest that i don't want to go that far Uh, I would actually point out that you do have six groups of seven preceding Jesus which means that Jesus is introducing the seventh group of seven, which is super significant, biblically speaking. If you just go to the Old Testament, it's almost like he is introducing the Jubilee, the Sabbath, like the Sabbath years, right? He is introducing the seventh of sevens, right? There've been 42 generations and then he is introducing that last one. And then if you have the number seven being the number of perfection, well, he is the seventh seven, right? And so that is a little bit better, but it's still not something that totally convinces me. And I wanna point out that maybe all of this is behind what Matthew's doing here. I'm not saying that it has to be just one of these theories. I think that there's many different reasons why Matthew could be doing this, uh, but I'm listing them in kind of order of the ones that I view as being stronger. The third possibility is to accentuate the role of David. Uh, And this just uh, is a reference to the numerology that you find in the Bible uh, just because uh, this is something that I don't always lean towards a whole lot because I think that people get kind of weird with it. But people will point out that in a lot of ancient alphabets, there are numerical equivalents to the letters Uh, and they'll point out that the name David or David, you know, in Hebrew, um, it is spelt Dalit Vav Dalit. Well, Dalit is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet and Vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit, He, Vav, right? So Dalit is the fourth letter. Vav is the sixth letter, and so the numerical equivalents of D and V are 4 and 6. And so if you add up the name David, you actually get the numerical equivalent value of 14. And so it's very possible, and I would say that this is actually probably very likely what is on Matthew's mind. I'm not saying it's the only thing on his mind, but I think it's probably a core component. The name David spells out 14. Right? It is the number 14. And therefore, you could see why Matthew might work this whole thing in order to get it to 14. 14. 14 it's because it's david 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 what is matthew's main focus in this whole gospel it's the fact that jesus is the king we literally just talked about the fact that in order to make this 14 14 14 thing work you have to actually include david's name twice right it's because matthew's accentuating the role of david in this genealogy david is the crucial linchpin the he's the turning point of the whole genealogy itself And so I think that it's very likely that this is one of the things that Matthew had in mind. He's wanting this to communicate 14, 14, 14. I don't know if this is something that is as out in the open, though, to where everybody would see this and they'd be like, oh yeah, 14, I think you have to read more deeply there. And so I think that there might be something even more on the surface that Matthew's going for. But I think this is actually a very convincing argument just because of the role that David plays already in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, we literally saw it in the first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham, right? So a big part of Matthew's focus is on the role of David in the life of Jesus, right? David is the king, Jesus is also the king. He is the son of David. We're going to see this throughout the book. So David is a crucial fixture, uh, figure in the Gospel of Matthew, and so I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that that's what he's accentuating. But like I said, I think that's a deeper level to where somebody would have to go even deeper. There's another thing, and this is my final theory I want to share on this, and really there's like probably like 14 or 15 theories that I've read on this, but these are just the most prominent ones and the ones that I think have the most weight to them. People point out that a lunar cycle is 28 days, right? You have 14 days of waxing and 14 days of waning. And you have to realize that people in ancient cultures were much more in time like in tune with like lunar cycles and solar cycles than we are nowadays because nowadays we just like look at our watch and stuff to figure out time and everything. People were much more in tune with that. And so if a lunar cycle is 28 days, you have 14 days of waxing and 14 days of waning. People pointed out that this could be a theological commentary on what's going on in the land of Israel at this time period. And so the genealogy itself is communicating a story right? So you have 14 generations from Abraham to David. This is the waxing of Israel as Israel rises to its highest. It starts off as a small, like it's just like a man and a woman who are barren. And by the time you get to the end of that 14th generation, you have the man after God's own heart reigning as king over Israel at the height of its prosperity. Right? And so you have the waxing of Israel. It is rising to its height. And then the next 14 generations are the waning, right? It's like the waning of the moon. And you actually have the collapse of the kingdom, right? And so it starts off at the height of heights with David, but then as a result of some of the stuff David does, and then what Solomon does, and then what Rehoboam does, you eventually see the collapse of the kingdom so that it splits into two parts, and you eventually see it being exported into Babylon and is deported into Babylon. And so you actually have the collapse of the kingdom. And then you arrive at the final 14 generations, which is from the deportation to Jesus. And this would be the waxing of the moon again, right? And this is the waxing of the nation as it once again gets better and better and prepares the way until eventually the Messiah shows up. Uh, And so I think that's actually a very convincing argument. Uh, Once again, it might seem kind of weird to us because we just never even talk about lunar cycles, but all you have to do is just go read scripture and you'll see that people are constantly looking at like the celestial bodies and stuff like that. I don't think that this is that far of a jump to look at it this way. And so there are just four theories that people present as why Matthew would be obsessed with the number 14. Uh, And I think that those are all pretty legitimate i think the third and fourth one in particular are probably the stronger arguments as to why he would really want to focus on this number and that really is something that matthew's trying to communicate right i mean he ends this whole genealogy by saying 14 14 14 he's trying to make a point about that but i don't want to suggest that verse 17 is the only significant thing about this genealogy because if i do that i'm still making genealogies boring because i'm saying oh the genealogy is boring until you get to that last little part Instead, I want to ask a broader question, and this is going to be what brings us to the conclusion of the whole video. What is Matthew's ultimate goal in this genealogy? Why is he sharing this? And really, this is my heart behind the whole video here. Because yes, the 14, 14, 14 thing is cool, but why does Matthew feel the need to open up his gospel with his genealogy? Is he just doing it because he's like, ooh, poetry, 14, 14, 14? I don't think so. Right. And we have to realize that once again, I argued this in the last video as well. Matthew is trying to communicate something to a core audience. Right. He is speaking to Jewish people and he's trying to defend the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And as quickly as possible, he is he needs to gain their attention. Right. He needs to bring them in, draw them in and communicate something about Jesus that will encourage them to keep reading the text. And so i don't think that he is just boring them to death with a genealogy because guess what that would just immediately like most people like if it was a modern audience if he started off this way we'd probably very quickly just close the book and move on right you typically skip this part that's what i'm saying but i don't think that matthew's doing that i think matthew has more going on here and so what i want to do to wrap up this video is i want to give five reasons i think that matthew shares this genealogy at the very beginning of his gospel, right? We are one verse in and then he goes into this genealogy for the next 16 verses. Why does he do it? Five reasons. First reason is that this genealogy tells a story and it tells the story in two different ways. He breaks it into three different categories. And the first way that it tells a story is that it tells a story about the character of Jesus. And you can think of this a lot nowadays. Like if you were to just Like, think about a modern genealogy. We don't talk about genealogies a whole lot. But what if I told you that there was a man living today who is descended from George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy? You'd probably think that this person had a future in politics, right? Or if I told you that there was a person who is descended from Hank Williams and Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson, you'd probably think that that person had a future in the music industry, right? Or if I started listing out all these people who were just descended from celebrities or descended from major historians or major religious reformers, you would probably conclude that this person is going to have something within them that reflects those people's character, right? Or that something about those people is going to be formative in their story because why would I share with you their genealogical record unless it had some sort of implications on their story? right? It'd be really random for me to be like, hey, let me tell you my story. I'm descended from all these people. Anyways, that's not important. Let me move on. No, the reason why you would list those names is because it communicates something about the person that we're talking about. And so I think that what Matthews doing with his genealogy is he is talking about, The character of Jesus and he breaks it into three categories for us first off you have from Abraham to David you have from David to the deportation and you have the deportation to Jesus right and so I think you have three main things he's communicating about the character of Jesus first off you have from Abraham to David this is the building up of the kingdom of Israel right and so I think one thing that he is communicating about Jesus is the Jewishness of Jesus he is a Jew through and through. He is an Israelite. He is born an Israelite. He was raised an Israelite. He is a Jew of Jew, descended from the Israelites, Abraham to David. He is that guy, right? But then, moving on beyond that, we see that he is from David to the deportation of in Babylon. Okay, well, if you look at those 14 generations, what do all 14 of those people have in common? They were kings who sat on the throne, right? So the first 14... They were just known for being Jewish people, right? They were Jews that led to the kingship. But then you get the next 14. These are all kings who sat on the throne of Israel. And so not only is Jesus a king, not only is Jesus a Jew, but he's a king, right? He is the king. He is the king of kings, in fact. But then you get to the last 14. And most of those names are unknown to us. But there's a few of them that really pop out right you go from the deportation to jesus and there's some names that show up there like zerubbabel and you have to ask what do these people have in common what do we know about these guys the names that we know what do we know about them they were priests right because guess what there was no king sitting on israel on the throne of israel at this time period but there were priests who were arising and sometimes those priests kind of almost functioned as kings right and so what we see is that jesus is a jew of jews an israelite of israelites he's a king of kings and he's a priest of priests he might not be descended from the tribe of levi but he's functioning as a priest king if anything he almost functions as a priest from the order of melchizedek right he is not from the tribe of levi but he does have that priest kingly role that melchizedek had back in genesis Right. And he is descended from the tribe of Judah and from David. And so he has a claim to the throne. Right. And so we learn something about who Jesus is just based off of his lineage. But then we also see the idea uh, that this is a story about the people of Israel. And this is something that you need to understand about the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, As Matthew is communicating the story of Jesus, he is very intentionally framing the life of jesus in a way that follows the pattern and story of the history of israel right even if you just look at how matthew is structured the first words of matthew are a reference to the book of genesis right the book of the genealogy i talked about in the last video how the book of genesis is structured around books of genealogies right so the very first words of matthew are a reference to the first book of the bible and then if you go to the very end to the great commission that seems like a reference to the end of 2 Chronicles, which in the old, like in the Hebrew Bible is the last book of the Bible. The way that we like the way that we frame our Bibles nowadays is Malachi's at the end, but if you were to look at a Hebrew Bible, the way that they order their books, 2nd Chronicles is at the end. And the very last thing we see is this edict being decreed by Cyrus. And it's very similar to the Great Commission and so if you look at the gospel of matthew it is framed in a very similar way to the old testament scriptures and we see that the life of jesus is supposed to be a play-by-play almost reenactment of the life of israel but where israel failed jesus succeeded and so in this genealogy we actually get a foreshadowing of jesus as israel because you get to look at that waxing and waning of the history of israel right they rise to power abraham to david and then they fall apart from David to the deportation. And then from the deportation to the time of Jesus, the line of Jesus and the line of David is kind of in relative obscurity. It's almost like a life, a death, and a burial, right? And we get to see how the genealogy itself is foreshadowing the passion of the Christ, right? We see from Abraham to David, you have the life of Israel. It's just growing in life. And then from David to the deportation, you have this death right it's the suffering of the line of David and then from the deportation to the time of Christ relative obscurity it's like Israel and the line of David and the kingship of Israel has been buried in a tomb but then with the arrival of Jesus Israel has a beautiful resurrection and the line of David and the king of Israel steps from the tomb In order to give birth to a new israel and a new life to israel and so we get to see that jesus is functioning as israel even in this genealogy and we're going to see this playing out in the chapters to come where jesus will literally do the same things that israel did but he's going to succeed where they failed and he is going to be the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords so that's just the first thing that matthew's doing this genealogy the second thing he's doing is he's communicating a message because and there's a lot of different messages to be communicated here, but one thing I want to specifically highlight is the role of women that plays throughout the genealogy. And a lot of times people will just focus on it and just leave it there. They'll be like, Oh, look, all these women are mentioned. That's really cool. How like feminist or something. I don't think that's the main message. I think Matthew is very specific on the women that he chooses to list in His genealogy because he doesn't mention anything about Sarah or Hagar or anything like that. Well, Hagar, I guess, wouldn't belong there. Uh, but he doesn't mention Sarah, right? He doesn't mention some of the other women we know from the text of scripture. He specifically mentions few a few women. He mentions Tamar, he mentions Rahab, he mentions Ruth, and he mentions the wife of Uriah. And we know the wife of Uriah's name is Bathsheba, but he doesn't call her Bathsheba. Instead, he calls her the wife of Uriah. And then ultimately he gets to Mary, right? And that would be the fifth woman that he mentions there. But let's just talk about the first four in general. What do these four, first four women have in common? Well, first off, they're women. But secondly, they're Gentiles, right? You start off with Tamar, she was a Canaanite, okay? Gentile. You go to Rahab, she was also a Canaanite, Gentile. You go to Ruth, she was a Moabite, Gentile. And then you go to Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was an Israelite. Well, she's not called Bathsheba here, is she? She's called the wife of Uriah. You know what Uriah was? A Hittite. He was a Gentile, right? So she was an Israelite who married to a Gentile, right? And so all four of these women are included in the genealogy of the Israelite king, but they're Gentiles. And so I think that Matthew is communicating a message about the fact that Gentiles have been grafted into the people of Israel since the beginning of their history right because we got to realize that Matthew is communicating a message to Jewish people but there's also a message about it to Gentiles the book's going to end with Jesus saying all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me go proclaim the gospel to the nations he is going to send them to the Gentiles and so Matthew from the very beginning of his book is communicating the fact that Gentiles have always been included in the list right they have been grafted into Israel all of these women are women who were either gentile who married into Israel Or they were israelites who married a gentile who had devoted themselves to yahweh right and so we have gentiles being grafted into israel but there's another thing that these four women have in common these four women each were involved in some sort of scandal around their birth but later on they were kind of esteemed as women of virtue right if you just go through each of their stories tamar rahab Bathsheba, and ruth all these women there's a scandal around their birth But later on we look back on them as women of noble and virtuous character this seems to be foreshadowing what matthew wants us to do with mary because guess what she is going to have a very scandalous looking birth but we're supposed to look back on her as somebody of to to be esteemed and valued and so i think there's something being communicated there we also see this communicating a message about sin right despite the fact that jesus will be presented as the perfect and sinless individual who laid down his life for sinners we see that his storyline is filled with sin. It is filled with sinners, right? You can't look at these stories without realizing, like, especially the stories about the women. You can't look at these storylines without being brokenhearted about all the things that had to go on in order for them to be included in the line, right? Tamar, I mean, notice who she had a kid with. It was with Judah, who was her father-in-law, right? There's a story of sin behind that that ultimately produced their child right you get to Bathsheba oh my David like he's having a kid with the wife of Uriah that is not a phrase that should show up especially whenever David is the high point of this whole thing so we see that even with David like David is the high point of this whole genealogy until you get to Jesus but even his story is so steeped in sin that the woman mentioned next to him is the wife of another man right and so we see that despite the fact that sin has been behind this whole story God has ultimately been true to his promise and he has brought about the fulfillment of that promise through Jesus. And so this is communicating a message about women. It's communicating a message about sin. It's communicating a message about Gentiles that they've been grafted in. And so there's a lot of stuff that Matthew is doing through this genealogy. And if you're reading this as a Jewish person, you are getting the message loud and clear because you're reading it and you're saying, why would he include those women? Oh, they're all Gentiles. Oh, they all had scandalous births hmm, maybe that Mary thing isn't what we thought, right? And so if you're a Jewish person reading this, the message is screaming loud and clear. A third reason that Matthew shares this is that it teaches a theology. And rather than me going and spending a long time explaining the theology of what it's communicating here, I thought that I would read you an excerpt uh, from this guy named Peter Lighthart's book, which he it's called Jesus as Israel. It's a commentary on the gospel of Matthew. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I actually like all of Peter Lighthart's work. Uh, it's very good. And this is what he says about the theology communicated in this genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus thus contains a Christology. Jesus is the son of Abraham, bringing blessings to the Gentiles, the true Davidic king, and an heir also to the priesthood. He is the priestly Messiah, the priest king after the order of Melchizedek. The genealogy of Jesus also shows what God is up to with the history of Israel. It shows that Israel does not exist for herself. Matthew doesn't want to give us a pure-blood genealogy. He wants to show that in Jesus, in his own body, flows the blood of Canaanites and Moabites and the wife of a Hittite. And when he begins to gather his corporate body, he incorporates us as members, so that in Jesus, people from every blood, from every race, from every tribe and tongue and combined in one person, in the one new man, Jesus. this way the genealogy at the beginning anticipates the conclusion when jesus the jew gentile son of abraham and david sends the eleven to proclaim his kingdom to the nations i thought that was a very concise way of communicating the theology that matthew is slamming us with just through this opening genealogy but then there's a fourth thing that matthew's doing with this genealogy and he is cementing the story of jesus in history right for us we read this stuff and we get bored but imagine that you did not realize that this story of jesus was supposed to be a historical reality well all of a sudden it rings true that this is historical reality we're not talking about some fairy tale about some god who became flesh no we are talking about a flesh and blood reality with a crazy history and jesus being born into that history this genealogy right here cements Jesus not only as a historical figure but a historical figure who was born into a historical reality in a historical context that has all these nuances and flourishes that are true of our own historical contexts and realities right this genealogy is making the assertion this is not a fairy tale this is not a sci-fi novel this is not a fantasy this is a matter of history we are talking about a biography we are talking about a true man who lived in true time in real history In all the different things that are true about history, right? This is a real person that we're dealing with. He is saying, I'm not just making up fairy tales. I'm not just telling you fancy stories. I am telling you about things that actually happened. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Yada, 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 yada. And then you have Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, right? This is a historic reality. That's what he's communicating. But then you have the final thing. And this is probably the most important thing that you need to grasp about this genealogy. It is establishing Jesus's credentials, right? Because here's the deal. Matthew established one thing in the very first verse. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you're a Jewish person hearing this, that immediately gets your attention because you're hearing it and you're like, oh, you're saying that this guy has a claim to the throne. And Matthew says, yes, he has a claim to the throne. Let me prove it to you. We live in different political systems nowadays where we don't appreciate genealogies as much. But what you have to realize about monarchies is that they usually pass through bloodlines. And that is true right here, right? We had a promise, starting with Abraham, that in in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And we have been tracing that seed from the book of Genesis all the way through Malachi or second Chronicles, whether you're reading a Christian Bible or a Hebrew Bible, whichever book's the last book, we have been tracing that genealogy and we've been yearning for that Messiah to show up. We've been waiting for the seed of Abraham and for the Messiah of David to show up and be a blessing to all the nations, to rule over all the nations. We've been waiting for that and we have tracked the whole genealogy, right? We went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob To his 12 sons and we heard jacob say that the scepter shall not depart from judah and so we followed judah through his whole line and we got to david where in second samuel chapter 7 god said to david your throne will be established and then we watched david's throne be established through solomon through rehoboam we saw the kingdom be split in two but we saw how god preserved the line of david even after the kingdom was split in two and we saw the royal line sitting on the throne generation after generation after generation after generation and then we saw them go off into exile and then they came back and now the lingering question has been will there be a messiah will god send the messiah to us but here's the deal in order for matthew to establish jesus as the messiah there's a first immediate important credential that jesus needs to meet he needs to have the right genealogy because it doesn't matter if Jesus does all the things the Messiah does. It doesn't matter if he is born in Bethlehem. It doesn't matter if he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. If he is not descended from the right people, he has no claim to the throne. Right? That is the most important thing that Matthew is communicating here. And so he has to start off his gospel with his genealogy. Because if he doesn't meet this single criteria, none of the rest of the story matters. The only way he can be the Messiah is if he lines up with what the bible said the messiah would line up with he has to be descended from abraham isaac jacob through judah through jesse through david through solomon through rehoboam he has to be descended from the royal line of david he has to be the zara of abraham through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed that's why matthew starts the book with the genealogy because if he cannot meet the criteria here none of the rest of the story matters And from a jewish perspective now they're locked in because guess what there are only few people who could actually meet this exact criteria not only is jesus descended from david he is descended from the royal line of david and now they're listening because they're saying whoa this guy doesn't just have david's blood flowing through him he has a valid claim to the throne Now, what we have to do is, as we go into the story that Matthew's going to tell, we have to look at what evidence Matthew gives to demonstrate that not only does he have a valid claim to the throne, but he has an extra valid claim to the throne. And going into the rest of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 4, Matthew's going to list out a series of prophecies that Jesus fulfills that demonstrates that not only does his blood demonstrate that he is the Messiah, or that he has a valid claim to the throne, but the prophecies he's fulfilling makes it very likely that he is the Messiah. And the rest of the book is going to be Jesus demonstrating how he has that authority to be the king. And he's going to be detailing his kingdom. And that's the whole purpose of it. And it all starts right here with the genealogy of Matthew. We spent a lot longer on this than I intended, but I think that's fine because I think it's very important for us to understand what Matthew is going for when he's communicating this genealogy. It is such an important text for us to grasp. And I hope that I communicated it well. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate. This has been Now Let's Be Honest. And I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.